0: Listen, you know, we love when we can reclaim something back from alcohol. Reclaiming what it means to party, have a good time, relax. And that's why we love what Gia founder Melanie says about reclaiming the word drinking from alcohol. It's time to take our power back, isn't it? Gia is a non alcoholic aperitif line with both canned, ready to drink offerings and their original aperitif. I like mine on ice with a splash of Topo Chica and has become my go to for the end of a long work day. You're going to want to start with the first sip kit, everything you need to try Gia for the first time. It contains a new 250 milliliter bottle, two cans of Gia soda, and two cans of Gia ginger, a fancy pour spout, and it ships free. Reclaim the word drinking with us and Gia. Save 20% off your first purchase at drinkgia.com with code STORIES. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Sober Stories crew. Welcome back. I need you to go ahead and bust out your notebook for this episode because our guest Nikita Mehta shares so many beautiful insights that I could barely keep up with my own note-taking. Nikita is a writer, researcher, yoga teacher, educator, and a gray area drinking coach. She's a third-generation yogi from the yoga school in Mumbai, India, and spent her childhood living between the US and India. Her graduate research studied the interaction between the parasympathetic activations of yoga and meditation and their effects on the secondary manifestation of stuttering. Nikita is a gray area drinking can coach championing equal representation of Asian women in sobriety spaces. Nikita and I talked all about her story and the agency and choice each of us has in our everyday lives. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Nikita and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories family. I am so excited to welcome Nikita Mehta to Sober Stories. Nikita, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me here, Beth. How's your day going? It looks bright and sunny there. Oh, Well, my day started off at 6 a.m. and I got to work at a teacher yoga class at one of my dream studios in San Mm -hmm. Francisco. And at the end of class, um, one of the young men came up to me and he said, how did you get so good at what you do? And I was like, I get to talk about this on a podcast today. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) How validating (laughs) was that? Oh, You know, it really is um, kind of what is infiltrating my entire life right now, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. he asked me that question and I had remembered I was looking over them in Shavasana at the end of class and thinking, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. How did this happen? How lucky Mm -hmm. am I to be living this moment right now? And and just thinking about what it was like 876 days before that, waking up in a hospital. Mm -hmm. So just this juxtaposition of of experience, Mm. right? And so his question of like, how did you get so good? It's like, well, I showed up each and every day and decided, Mm. okay, one more day of this, one Mm. more day of like pushing myself a little further of seeing what could unfold if I just stayed steady through the Mm. roller coaster of what life lays at our feet.
0: Oh my God. I feel like we could just end the interview now and everyone (laughs) has left with like this new inspiration and this new motivation to go out and make today great. So for those who don't know you and don't know your genius and your magnificence,
1: give us the high notes. Who are you? Where are you? What do you do? Yeah. So my name's Nikita. I love that name so much because Nikita means unconquerable. And yes. for the longest time, I was like, what does that mean? Like, mm. who am I, right? When you're stuck in your story, when you're stuck in the thick of it, man, I felt conquerable by everything. Mm. So I really didn't realize the power of what that meant, right? That I was stuck underneath the layers of mud, waiting, yeah. waiting, learning the lessons, really like absorbing the nutrients from all of that. So yeah. My name is Nikita and I, I really embody that today. I live in San Francisco and that's another thing that we get to talk about because I live in San Francisco in my own apartment. I know that that seems so flippant, but for me, um, for someone who was married for years and who was too scared to get away from that marriage because I never thought I had my own agency, mm. right? It's stuck in my alcohol story because I never thought I had my own agency, being able to choose the the location of where I live and and provide for myself has been Mm -hmm. one of the biggest blessings of the last two years, three Mm -hmm. years almost. Mm -hmm. So I'm here in San Francisco. I'm a yoga teacher. I'm a sobriety coach. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of different somatic healing work and, and all of that is based on the backbone of the story that we get to talk about today. All right. Let's dive into it. Tell us that story. What's the story of you and alcohol? You know, I was thinking about this when you asked, I'm so glad I didn't have more time to think about it. because I, <laughs> I like to fun- keep them spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah. So much of my story and so much of, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this for South Asians, but I mean this for, yeah. I think people in general, so much of my life was, was dictated from a lack mentality. Mm. There's not enough of and so you're falling behind already, right? Definitely in the South Asian community, we're constantly being put up against others in around us, right? Other mm-hmm. peers. And so my drinking story started at such a young age because I constantly felt less than, mm-hmm. constantly felt less than, right? My parents did the best that they could and they, they really spoke from what they were, they were given. Mm-hmm. But it was always, but why didn't you get better grades? This is an A, but why not an A plus, right? Ooh, she's so thin. Why aren't you that thin? She made head dance team. Why didn't you? Mm. So this lack mentality of me not being enough, or the the resources that were available being finite. And because they were finite, either that person got it and that meant I didn't get it, right? And that I was just like not gonna win at life. Mm. That was the mindset that that set up the foundation for my drinking story to really thrive. Right. That means that. By the time I got to that first drink, I was waiting for something, Mm -hmm. anything to calm my central nervous system because I was always on high alert. It was waiting for the other shoe to drop constantly. And so there's a plethora of other things that really don't have any rhyme or reason to talk about because we all have different pieces of the puzzle that come together. Mm -hmm. And they're all meaningful, but they're pieces of this puzzle. It's really the foundation that laid the the groundwork for me to say, oh, right. When I took that first drink and I felt the, the wave of relief wash over me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's because I didn't have to listen to my prefrontal cortex telling me <laughs> that same lack mentality, that same shame story of that I wasn't enough. Mm. And so for years, I fought so hard, right? I, I started drinking um, very early on at 18. So for for many, maybe that's not very very early mm-hmm. on, but and immediately was drinking to a point where my body couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. So, my first attempt to get alcohol free, to get substance free, was when I was 18 years old. It was wow. the day after my high school graduation. I walked mm-hmm. across the stage of high school and I went to sleep that night and I woke up the next morning and I went to rehab. Oh my gosh, I didn't yeah. see that. Yeah, <laughs> so and that was in July of 2004. I was 18 years old. And so July of 2022 was the 18-year anniversary of Mm. that first time of me getting. And it felt very heavy because it was Mm. this half lifetime. And I was thinking, what have I done? What have I done with that half of a lifetime? These 18 years of growth that I've had, did I I actually live up to the expectation? More so. I lived up more so (laughs) than I ever could have. I can answer that for you. (laughs) But even then, right, in those first experiences of of walking away from the substance, no one ever told me that you don't have to live in the lack mentality mindset. Mm. You don't have to play small in order to to get away from the substance. What they told me was you can never have this again. They doubled down on the lack mentality. Mm. They doubled down on you are wrong. You've done something wrong, right? Something about you is fundamentally broken. And I was like, Wait, I've been told that my whole life. That's how I ended up here. Mm -hmm. Why are we using the same vernacular in
2: order to create?
1: Yeah. And validating. Yeah. They, They were asking me to create a mindset shift with the same pieces of the puzzle. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't put the puzzle together. But it had nothing to do with it. It was that I needed to get rid of those puzzle pieces and start with a blank canvas. Took me 18 years. Well, it took me 16 years, right? like <laughs> 15 and a half years. But, um, and I, I will never say that those 15 and a half years went to waste. Because right? I, I get to do what you do, which is see the totality of humans when they come to my doorstep. And I couldn't have done that if I didn't see the totality of my own humanity. And it came from, man, falling on my face so many times. I didn't just go to that one rehab facility. I went to nine others mm. through the course of those 15 and a half years. I really tried so many different ways. And, and drinking wasn't my only story. I also yeah. was wildly successful in school. I had a career in advertising. I went to graduate school. I got married. I did all of these things with the undertone of mm. grab this while you can because you're so lucky to be given this opportunity because lack mentality was still there. So, I don't, you know, lots of things happened during my drinking career that are fun and funny and and there were years that I'd love to talk about that, but what I really what I really want to say is the last day of my drinking. I woke up in a hospital and a doctor was looking at me and I was 34 years old and he said, "I can't get your blood pressure down and I think you're about to have a stroke." You're so young. My nurses shouldn't have to see this. It's kind of against the rules, but I called your father because I think he should be able to say goodbye. And then Mm. he walked out of the room. And for some reason, when he did that, without the shame story, without like sitting there and coddling me, without all of these things, just pure facts, like this is what's happening. It awakened something in me that thought, is this the last day you want to stay here? Or do you want one more day? Mm. Would you like to wake up tomorrow and try a little, just a little, just 10%, forget 10%. The first couple of days it was 1%. What can I do Mm. to show up for myself 1% today? Do you want one more day? Do you want one more? And here's the, here's the difference that I, I did on that first day. And I got my first day of sobriety is March 17th, 2020. It's the day that California went into lockdown. Oh my gosh. So (laughs) everything shut down. And it was this perfect metaphor for me of like, everyone's taking a break with you. Mm. Right. We're all just going to like stay home. I I did not stay home. I was in rehab again. (laughs) Sorry. um, (laughs) It was very funny. Um, But it was just this, this idea that like, I'm not missing out on anything. The FOMO that had always been there for so many years, it was like, well, there's nothing going on. Hmm. So, thank you all worldwide for taking the <laughs> break with me
2: so that I could do this.
1: What I what I never thought from that day forward was I can never drink again.
2: Hmm.
1: Cuz that was lack mentality at its best. What I really figured out from that first day was what are the needs that I'm trying to have met? with alcohol. Let me figure that out. And it started with the 1% the next morning mm-hmm. of like, what do I need to make myself 1% more comfortable today? Oh, I would love to take a bath. Mm. We had a bathtub at the rehab facility. So I drew myself a bath and I sat in there. Oh, this is what it means, means like to actually take care of my somatic body. Mm. I had a need. I listened to it. I didn't run from it. I didn't try to cover it up with something. And through my my time there, I, I stayed for 45 days. I begged to stay more and they were like, you need to go now. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I did that a little bit each day. I woke up and I'm like, one more day. You have one more day. What, what is it that you want to do? What is the need that you want to uncover today? So that the mindset shifted from lack mentality to abundance mindset. What is it that you need? And how can I give you that the manifestation of that in so many different ways that even if alcohol was available, it would feel like the worst option presented. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I needed those 45 days of doing that in the, in the safety so that when I came back out and the world was still closed down, (laughs) yoga was not an option, which I desperately needed to be in community I figured it out really quickly because I had been listening to myself with such a discerning ear with such a discerning heart. This is what I need for myself. Oh, I need community. I need to be met by like-minded individuals. I'm going to find a group of people that will go to the yoga studio with me so I don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. So, really the if we're going to talk about my my story, it is the shift from lack mentality to abundance mindset. I also really appreciate explaining that
0: within a story because I feel like we hear lack and abundance and, and these words thrown around a lot. And if we don't have an actual application of those words, it can be really like hard to understand, hard to grasp on the concept and really get anything from it. But I think that what you're speaking to, this idea of loss of alcohol versus what you gain is such a powerful powerful piece to all of this. So I have so many questions from your story and what you've just shared. And thank you for sharing that so vulnerably. How did yoga play a part in this the whole time? Because you you mentioned this moment of realizing how to care for your somatic body, mm-hmm. but I know your credentials. So I know that you were already practicing, already teaching, already really immersed in this somatic experience. So what was it like putting that together, finally? putting these pieces of, oh, this actually can serve me in this way. This can be a tool for sobriety. This is something that's useful for me.
1: Yeah. Great question. I actually, I have to think about that a lot because I get a lot of clients these days that are yoga teachers Mm
2: -hmm. and they're so Mm -hmm.
1: confused. They're like, but I listen to my body. It's like, well, are we actually listening? (laughs) It's like, I can't even tell you how many therapists
0: I work with in my sobriety yeah. coaching, like so many therapists. And they're like, I know all of this. I'm like, I know, babe. I know you know yeah. all this. Yeah. And <laughs> let's figure out how to
1: apply this. Carry on. Right. So exactly the same way, right? We're taught these things and and we know that there's a need there. We know there's a need. So we go into the blueprint of society and we're like, how are other people doing it? Okay, they're doing it with a yoga practice. They're doing it by learning about their own psyche. They're maybe doing it by learning about their own psyche and then becoming a provider of that. But in the beginning, for the first five, six years of my yoga teacher training, right, or for my teaching, yoga was really a spiritual bypass. Mm. I knew I needed something. I didn't know how to actually discern what the need was, and so I'd just go to yoga, mm-hmm. or I'd teach yoga, or I'd I'd sit in meditation and I think oh, you've done so much good for your body. (laughs) But it wasn't drilling down into the shame story that was popping up, that was coloring the way that I was seeing myself in the relationship that I was in. And because of that, I was drinking. It was another Band-Aid that I was putting on top of it. Okay, I'm going to go to yoga. I'm going to feel good about my body because I can do these postures in this way. And I'm going to forget that I'm allowing a story that was told to me at four years old to show up and that's why I'm still in this relationship. The cognitive dissonance between my actual needs and how I was showing up for myself was pretty intense. Now, I love this question because how is my yoga practice different now is what I really love is that I don't push myself to chase asana. Mm-hmm. I don't sit in meditation if I don't have an actual need that I have dis- d- determined. And mm-hmm. an actual need that I've determined in the morning can be to be silent with myself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If I'm not feeling it, I don't force myself to do anything anymore because it makes me a good yogi. Or sometimes I go out and eat a cheeseburger. And so yeah. like, that's fine, right? It's like, how do I actually show up for myself versus what I thought I was supposed to be doing to get better? There is no getting better. There was never any getting better. It was a full witnessing of myself that I needed to do in all of the aspects of myself.
0: I think that's mind blowing, this idea of all of the things I thought I should be doing to get better. And we had a conversation in my community space last week about shoulds and expectations and mm. how we should meditate or how we should eat clean to fuel our body or how we have all these external. And, and some of these shoulds are objectively harmful. Like I should work to the bone to make a bunch of money to pay a bunch of rent, like whatever. Like we can, we can categorize some of the shoulds under like, obviously that's not a great one, but it's an external expectation. But even within the wellness space, even within the recovery space or the healing space, there are a lot of shoulds. There are a lot of things that, oh, maybe we should sit and meditate for three minutes every day, even though it drives us insane and it feels like a guilt trip and it doesn't actually serve us. And I love the idea of pairing that with the 1% increment. How did you shift this idea from this kind of like total change, total shift, one eighty into one percent?
1: Oh, oh my goodness! This was the game changer for me because, and I and I witness it all the time when people come in um, to start doing work, and they're like, everything has to change. Mm -hmm. Oh, oof! I feel that. I feel the weight of expectation. Mm -hmm. No, that it's so maladaptive to do that, right? We walk into the door. Especially when we're on an alcohol free journey, right? Mm -hmm. And we think everything needs to change right now. I need to start eating healthy and working out tomorrow. Our brain doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. We have created habit over the course of X amount of years. Adaptive change means that we maybe we figure out what the need is and we override that need with giving it to ourselves in a different way. Or adaptive change means just making it possible that it feels comfortable to do that the next day. And that's where this whole like 180 to 1% shift comes in. And I'll give you an example of like what I mean by that. It's like, okay, every day I used to come home and I used to eat a bowl of ice cream. I had actually no idea why I was coming home and eating the bowl of ice cream, but like I was starting Mm -hmm. to gain weight and I was like, I need to stop doing this. Mm -hmm. So did I come home the next day and not eat the bowl of ice cream? No, because I would have sat there and I would have fantasized about it and it wouldn't have been adaptive change. Maybe I could have strung together 30 days of not eating ice cream. But my body wouldn't have understood why I was doing that. And at some point in time, I would have just lassoed right back and started eating the ice cream again. Instead, I took a little bit less and a little bit less. And then instead of buying ice cream, I bought gelato. And then instead of buying gelato, I bought frozen yogurt. And then instead of that, I just started making stuff at home that was fruit mixed with water that I froze.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I still gave myself what the need was, which was eat something cold when you come home to signify that the day is done. Something sweet to remind you that like you're giving yourself a treat. It's just an adaptive change. It was the 1% change that ended in, I don't eat something cold when I come home anymore because I just figured something else out. But it was the 1% shift that really made it so that I could stay on that path and it didn't feel overwhelming from day one. Once mm. again, lack mentality versus abundance mindset. Mm-hmm. If I come home and said, you can't have that, it's lack mentality. Instead, I was like, what can you put in here or what can you give to yourself that still makes you feel like everything is possible? Mm. Anything that you wanted before is still possible. Held and supported and nurtured. You know, we had
0: a conversation about this a while ago with this idea of transformation fatigue, of doing all of the things all at once and suddenly you're so burnt out. Your system is so overloaded. You just have no capacity to continue to maintain because you try to change so many things at once. And my motto for this is like a cookie is always better than a glass of wine. If if that is what is like that incremental change for you to be able to, and and, you know, sugar is a big thing. People are always worried about sugar when they quit drinking. But for me, like a cookie is always better than a glass of wine. That is incremental change that is stepping you in the right direction, taking the next right step towards the ultimate end goal of, of whatever your end goal is. But when we overburden the system, when we completely overload it with so many expectations, there's just no way it's going to be successful. No way. Yeah. Raise your hand if you've ever thought, hey, therapy sounds cool. Then open your computer to find help and then immediately shut the laptop in a panic. Me? Anyone else? This experience is such a bummer to me. Therapy is such a useful tool in our sober toolbox, but there are often so many barriers to entry that folks quit before they ever get help. That's why we're happy to be sponsored by BetterHelp, a digital therapy platform that offers licensed therapists trained to listen and help you. BetterHelp has a network of over 20,000 therapists with a broad range of expertise, giving you online convenient access to support. It's easy. Fill out a questionnaire describing your specific needs and you'll be matched with a therapist in less than 48 hours. In addition to your secure video or phone therapy sessions, you can exchange unlimited messages with your therapist between meetings. No more overwhelm, no more barriers to entry, just help when you need it. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com/soberstories. That's betterhelp.com/soberstories. So tell me what was different about your last stint in
1: rehab compared to all the other ones. What was the change factor there? What made this stick for you? So this idea of the blueprint, I've been talking about this a lot lately, maybe because I finally saw it for the first time, Mm. that I had been playing a role in the ways that I showed up in all of the different spaces. And that included (laughs) rehab. It included Mm -hmm. how I showed up in sobriety spaces, and then how I showed up in drinking spaces, that I was always looking to kind of play a part so that there was acceptance that was met, right? That I fit into the expectations of what others were were looking for from me that I was prospering at the same level and what I got to do this last time maybe because everyone was renegotiating that everything went dark and it was like what blueprint hmm. who are we supposed to be what does success look like what is the age range at which we're supposed to accomplish certain things when i no longer felt like i was falling behind because there was no blueprint to fall into everything was possible just like you're saying right like i i think i i would get into a sobriety space and all of a sudden the expectation of what was needed of me was so much and i could sustain that for a little bit of time right mm. i could stop drinking and get into grad school write some papers go speak on the on the circuit and then it would feel like i don't know how to keep up this momentum and so at the worst possible minute right before the big conference i would drink And felt like self-sabotage all the time, but really what it was was like that exponential growth was not laid on a foundation of my own desires and my own needs being met. Mm -hmm. And yet I was playing to other people's expectations. This time I really got to sit down and think like, what is it? How do you need to speak to yourself to make this possible? And what do you want to do? What does it look like to set the Set my goals thirty days down the road, and then feel the dopamine reward system of accomplishing something small, manageable, adaptable, and then doubling down. Maybe, maybe if it worked for me, Mm -hmm. and that's really what I did. I have to tell you that the biggest change, and and we're talking, we're kind of going around it over and over again, is I never, ever told myself ever again. I never pigeonholed Mm -hmm. myself by saying I will never drink again. Yeah. And people ask me that on a weekly basis, right? Clients are mm. like, but you're never going to drink again, right? I'm like, why would I ever say that to myself? You know what I say? <laughs> when I wake up in the morning, I got to teach mm. on the fifth floor in the mission, overlooking the city today as the sun was coming up. And I was teaching as the sun just like washed over my face. And then I got to come here and speak to one of my mentors on her <laughs> podcast. And then I have a big meeting where close to 200 people will come and we get to dance today to celebrate Mm. all the little wins. Alcohol just isn't going to work into my day -day. today. But I have one more day tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. I have Mm. no idea. The non-pigeonholing of my experience gave me the freedom, gave me the space to actually think about what it was that I wanted to create instead of constantly thinking about all the things I couldn't have. So I've said this in a meeting before and it's been floating around on the internet as well. Like the human mind cannot comprehend the negative. So if I tell you, don't think about a puppy, what are you thinking about? Yeah, puppies. You think about a puppy. If you Mm -hmm. say you can't drink alcohol, all you're thinking about is drinking alcohol, right? Instead of that, like a skier, when they're skiing down a mountain, isn't thinking don't hit a tree, don't hit a tree, don't hit a tree. They're thinking follow the path. Mm-hmm. And what I shifted for myself was actually figuring out what the path was, this way that I wanted to feel. I knew I wanted to help people. How was I going to help people? I didn't know. So when I got out of, of rehab, I went back to speech therapy and I started working with kids.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then a gray area drinking certificate kind of was landed in my lap. And mm-hmm. then one day I got a phone call from this beautiful girl who lives in Texas, you know? <laughs> So, but the thing is that I kept my eyes on the path instead of the lack mentality that had been built into my blueprint mm. and that shifted everything. One of the things that I think is so key here is
0: this idea of agency and choice. And I think a lot of people in those early days or even in addiction or in their drinking days or in those early days after you remove it, we all feel this lack of agency, this lack of control, this lack of choice Mm -hmm. of being the own steward of the ship and having a say in how things go. And I think that that is a really common thread and something that people don't realize. They don't realize until you say like, you have a choice, you get to choose. Mm -hmm. And that choice is really powerful. But for the people who are maybe listening to this and think like, well, that sounds great. That sounds nice. But i I don't have a choice. I don't feel like I get to choose. Like, What do you say to that? What do you say to somebody who doesn't feel like they have choice or agency right now?
1: Yeah. Great question. So this is where we go back to the 1%, right? Because we have so many different choices. Even the choice between like, do I take a shower or a bath? And I know that Mm -hmm. sounds so silly, but we take it back in the littlest ways at first. Mm. For many of us, right? Like I... I was definitely in a relationship um, for many years where I felt like I didn't have choices because I was not the one who brought in the financial resources. I didn't make choices about the house. I was quite a few years younger. And so even just shifting that, and I'm, I'm no longer in that relationship, but I still was very much acting like that because I had kind of gone through my, my adult, into my adult years um, with that blueprint. And it was so small at first. It was so subtle at first that I took agency back in even drawing attention to the fact that I could choose my own clothes. Mm. And then it was that I got to choose the entertainment that I surrounded myself with, right? So if you're Mm -hmm. like, if you feel like you have no agency, but you have the agency to pick Quitlet to listen to, Mm -hmm. right? That you can go for a walk and put on Quitlet And think about the ways that the stories that you're hearing are so much like yours. That's taking agency. That's taking agency also by validating your own story in all of the ways that it has shown up. One of the ways that we we give away our agency is when we allow what has happened in the past to define everything. It is you taking away your own
2: agency Mm.
1: instead of using it as the motivational piece to say, look at where I've been and where I can go. So it's really like the small incremental goals. Okay, by the end of the week, I want to make sure that I've walked 40,000 steps. That's actually really easy. It sounds like a big number, but 10,000 steps a day is not that many. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: over the course of seven days, 40,000 is doable. So it's an adaptable change that has an achievable goal that I've set for myself. And what I feel at the end of that is that I showed up for me. There's another little thing going on right now where it's like if you say that you're gonna be at work at seven o'clock in the morning, you're there at seven o'clock in the morning. If you tell Mm -hmm. your kid that you're gonna have cupcakes ready for them, you have the cupcakes ready. But when you tell yourself that you're not gonna have a drink on Tuesday, and when you have that drink on Tuesday, the only person you're lying to is yourself. Mm -hmm. And we do this over and over again. Either we set the bar so far, so high, that we know that we're going to fail and we use it as a motivation to be like, see, I couldn't do it anyway. Mm. Or we never set the bar at all. Mm-hmm. And we never even put the carrot down. It's really like a, <laughs> a variation of those two things. Yeah. Yeah. What if we just mud ourselves in the middle? Wait, we talk a lot about self-efficacy and our
0: belief mm-hmm. in our Ability to do something and to hold promises to ourselves. And one thing we know is that the way alcohol works in the brain and some of the neurochemistry and the mechanisms there is that self-efficacy is one of the things that get really deteriorated by alcohol, both in the structures, but also in our actions and the way we behave and the way we show up in the world for ourselves, as you said. And we, over time begin to lose faith in our ability to hold promises to ourselves, Mm -hmm. to others. And and I know that anybody who's listening to this and is told a partner, maybe I'm I'm never drinking again. And then you drank again. And then it eroded that trust just a little bit. Like that's that, but like with ourselves too. And when we think about this concept from like a psychological standpoint, there are other ways to build self self self-efficacy. So if we are lacking self-efficacy, if our self-efficacy has eroded, then we can build it up in other ways outside of alcohol. And that's exactly what you're talking about. This idea of, all right, I can't maybe hold this big promise to myself yet because of the neurochemistry, because of the physiology, because it's too big of a goal. But maybe my next promise is I'm going to brush my teeth every day. which is a hard thing to do for a lot of people in in active addiction. It's a very, like just brushing your teeth is hard, but saying, I'm just going to brush my teeth today. And that's going to be the promise I keep to myself. And when you keep that promise, it tells your brain, oh, I can do that. And then you can start to believe you have the ability to do bigger things and bigger things. And I I think that, again, that speaks to this incremental change, this 1% step in the right direction versus I'm going to overhaul my whole life. And that's going to help me get sober. Like that's not going to be the thing that's going to get sober doing that incremental change is going to be what builds a sustainable iteration of this overall. Yeah. In your own version of sobriety, I don't know, what, what what word do you use to describe yourself?
1: I don't actually talk about it a lot in that way. I'm a person who doesn't drink alcohol. Okay. In yeah. your own
0: version of not drinking alcohol, how has that evolved over the last two years? You talked about March, 2020. What's that look like since then?
1: I, I've been very lucky to this time around, this time around, not be triggered is not the word I want to use. Mm-hmm. Not be influenced by mm-hmm. witnessing other people drinking alcohol. Mm. And because of that, my, my journey has been so interesting. I feel like the way that I've been able to help people has been interesting, the way I've been able to interact with others and see all the ways that we hide Has been really interesting. So when you're asking me that, it has you know, we we come in and we're here to talk about alcohol. People land in my doorstep and I'm like, we're here to talk about alcohol, but we're not here to talk about alcohol. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the first 45 days when I was actively in a facility, I was there to talk about alcohol, and after that, the 830 days after that. I have systematically gone through my life and been like, Mm. what are all the ways I've hidden? What are all the ways that I have forced or malleated myself to fit into a box for someone else? Mm. What are the shame stories? And when they come up, how do I not deal with them and instead just go along with it? Right? They become such a habit that I shame my body when I don't fit in that bathing suit. Why? Why can't I just grab the next size up and be like, what do these numbers mean anyway? Yeah. And that was like the biggest thing about what these last 3 years have been is like it doesn't it's not if we only talk about alcohol, man, we will hide in other ways. Shopping yeah. and food and and men and all of the things, right? But, you know, and the way that I did that was I kept my my small incremental goals very palpable, meaning like I'm going to get to, I'm going to, just like you were saying, I'm going to sit and brush my teeth every day for 30 days. And it was like, yeah, I'm going to sit and look at the way that I am showing up in romantic relationships and actually write down what I'm acting like. And at the end of those 30 days, once I've seen that I'm no longer falling into that same pattern, I'm going to buy myself a Lululemon sweatshirt. (laughs) <laughs> which means that now when I put on that Lululemon sweatshirt, because I remember exactly which one it is, I'm like, I did that. Mm. You did that for you, girl. Mm-hmm. right? So it was so much about what I thought was that I was going to stop drinking
2: <laughs> and
1: I would be the most boring person on the planet. Like I would like not be able to do anything and I would always be triggered. And I go to more parties than anyone I know. I just like, I have season tickets to the ballet. Mm-hmm. I like moved to this part of the city so that I could walk to all the comedy clubs. Like I just live life in 40. And the reason that I was able to do that was because I, I really thought about like, what are the needs that I was having met with alcohol? And so if it's like, Oh, I don't feel comfortable in this situation. I don't go into that situation. Yep. And if I have to go into that situation, man, I have a pep talk with myself. I have, a, um, a reward for myself for going and getting that thing done. Like all of these things, I have external accountability partners. I have internal accountability, like so much so that I get to, this is the life, like the life that I'm living now is the alcohol that is the, is the alcohol, is the life that alcohol promised me. Mm. Yes. Every day. Yes. And now I get to help women Figure out their journey to getting to the life that they're living beyond their wildest dreams. Right? Like, if you had asked me in March, on March seventeenth of twenty twenty, what is it going to look like in two and a half years for you? I would not have dreamed big enough because yeah. I didn't yeah. even know that this was possible.
2: Right.
1: Right. I didn't know that this was possible. Right. And that the, the whole point is that like everyone is going to get there in a different way. So sometimes I think we read Quitlet we go into alcohol-free spaces and we're like, oh, this is how that person did it. I'm going to do it just like that. Yeah. But your knees are different. Your right. shame story is different. This is about like falling back in love with yourself in such an intense way mm. that you wake up and you're like, mm. <laughs> <sighs> okay, I'm going to make myself some oatmeal and go sit in the bathtub even at eight o'clock in the morning because that's what I feel like I need right now.
2: That sounds delightful.
1: Right? I know. <laughs>
0: You know, I think that's so powerful, this, and and there's that meme floating around the internet right now that's like five years ago. Think about like what five years ago person of you, I'm like fumbling the words, but think about how you five years ago would look at yourself now. And that one really is striking to me because I'm coming up on five years sober. So September 29th is my five years. And so I think about five years ago, I was in the middle of multiple like Several of the worst traumas of my life. It's I'll, I'll tell that story another time. It's like you couldn't make a movie out of it. It was so many things happening at once. Yeah. But I was also drinking. I was drinking. I don't even. I couldn't even count anymore because I was drinking boxed wine. I'd moved to boxed uh-huh. wine. I had so much self-loathing. I was a new mom. It was just awful. And I I literally would not have even been able to imagine the yeah. life I live now. Like I just spoke at a conference last week about. Caring for yourself and about sobriety. And I like to have thought five years ago that the person I was then would be doing what I do now. It is literally unfathomable. And I think that that is a really common thread with people in this space of removing alcohol from their lives, because for so many people, it's the the one thing. It's the one thing holding them back from all of the other things, from all of the expansion, from all of the knowing, from all of the creativity and exploration, and really, truly getting to understand what you desire and what you need. And and I think that's one of the things you've talked so much today about is really understanding what you need and what you desire. And alcohol is the band-aid for that. Alcohol is the false promise. It's the band-aid. It's the thing that we have been told is glamorous, is exciting, is adventurous, is relaxing. And what we see happening on the other side is that it is dulling everything. So many people are such small, quiet versions of themselves, of the big greatness and expansiveness that that is truly their blueprint. And it's because alcohol is this one thing holding them back from all of the rest. And that is one of the things I hear. In your story, you and I have coffee dates, and obviously, I know we could talk forever, and we will, because I need a full update very soon. Definitely. But the last question I ask every episode is if your story were to be written, what would it be titled, and what kind of story would it be?
1: Yeah, great question. You floated this yesterday, and I, once again, didn't spend any time (laughs) because I wanted it to be an amalgamation of what we talked about, right? So I thought, well, maybe it would be called Nine Lives, right? Mm. My, my nickname is kitten and man, I've lived <laughs> nine lives through this, but I think it would be called, this is the life that alcohol promised. Mm. And yes. I think it would be talking so much more about this, my day to day now, how I get to live, what I get to do. And listen, like the, the most important part of that is that none of this would have been possible without those 18 years yes. of struggle.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: every single experience, every near-death experience, every broken relationship, every, and I've told this story before, I was supposed to work in Obama's White House and drank Mm. and gave it up. Mm. Every single piece of it created the foundation for me to get to live the life of purpose and fulfillment and joy and pleasure that I live today. Mm. This is the life that alcohol promised. Amazing. I love that. And that is I think such a
0: beautiful sentiment, and I hope that people take that with them, that even if you are still in it, even if you are still on the other side, that what is waiting for you is what alcohol has always mm-hmm. promised. And it's going right. to be so big and hard and good. And I'll tell you, from from a data standpoint, I see it happening over and over and over yes. again for people who are moving. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. All right, my friend, I adore you. I know that the listeners are going to adore you as much as I do and want to connect with you and get to know you.
1: Where can they find you?
0: What do you have going on in your world?
1: Yes. So the easiest way to connect with me is Instagram at Nikita K. I will tell you, I have not told anybody yet that I just started a new website. Instagram <gasps> yes. has nothing on it yet. Okay. And it's called Your Sober Lifestyle. Oof. your sober lifestyle, Oof. right? Because it's not about my sober lifestyle. It's about your sober lifestyle. And that's what we get to do together. We get to figure out the ways to um, really have you thrive in your sober lifestyle. So that is coming soon. It is in the works. But for right now, at Nikita K. Neto, that's how you can practice yoga with me and run away to Bali with me next year. Um, Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> all the things. All the things. So yeah, just so grateful to be part of these these conversations in these communities. And Beth, so very grateful for you Mm -hmm. for not allowing me to play small. Well, it has been
0: my joy and pleasure to give you the space and the platforms and watch you like just kick total ass. It's been so cool (laughs) for, for you're so eloquent and I'm over here like, nah, and like the Nikita cheering squad. So it has been amazing to watch you do this. And I can't wait to see what you have next. And y'all, I, I mean, you've sat in her genius for 45 minutes, but I cannot recommend Nikita's work enough. If you're looking for yoga, somatics, alcohol-free inspiration. There's so much goodness where Nikita lives on the internet and the work she does. So thank you so much for your time today. And I will talk to you very soon. Thank you, Beth. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Nikita Meta. Can you see why I'm plugged into everything Nikita does? Y'all make sure to keep an eye on what she's up to next. I know it will be magic. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side. Callie Williams is our community engagement lead. Daniela Marty for our graphic design and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.